Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Wood Talk. Now here are three guys who always turn the other cheek. When cleaning up tenants, Mark, Shannon, and Matt. All right, welcome to Wood Talk. Oh, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> okay. I thought you got a new one for a second. Yeah. Welcome to Wood Talk. Talk. All right, it's episode four sixteen <laughs> for October thirtieth, twenty seventeen. Oh, it's almost Halloween. Matt's dressed like a little princess. Oh, he's so cute. Look at him. Oh man, look at me. <laughs> oh, today's show. I am. I'm so pretty. <laughs> <laughs> On today's show, we're talking about a bench for a hybrid woodworker, speeding up the color change in cherry, building for tools, and the morality and ethics of taking inspiration. Uh, we're just going to get right into the topics. This is our second recording for today. Pretty so. heavy, heavy topic show. Yeah, nothing, nothing heavy here. Just all light topics. No. Um, <laughs> we'll get right into a couple of voicemail questions that we have, and one is from uh, Travis, and that is regarding the color change in cherry. Hello, gentlemen. My name is Travis from Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Longtime listener, first time caller. Love the show. Uh, quick question here. I'm building a uh, small decorative. Uh, hanging wall cabinet uh, in cherry. I've built other items in cherry, and I've never really, uh, I always skip over this little step, but I'd like to try this step this time. But I hear that if you uh, put your cherry out uh, in some direct sunlight, um, that it can really uh, speed up the, the, uh, the coloring process for the cherry. So a couple questions. First question is, do I have to do this before or after I put on a finish? I'm not uh, staining the wood at all. I'm just putting on, uh, I, I don't know what my finish is going to be yet, um, but it'll just be a clear, clear coat of something. Do I have to do this before or after that? Second uh, question is, how long do I put it outside? Do I go all day long, a couple hours, a couple days if I can? Um, Will one hour do the trick? Um, uh, I would love to uh, hear some uh, insight from you guys. Thanks in advance. 
All right. Thanks for that, Travis. Now, there's a lot of different ways you could do this or things you could put on the wood to cause this reaction. You don't necessarily have to put it outside. Uh, but I could tell you just from experience in Arizona, very hot sun. And I would go to the lumber place. It's about 30 minutes away. I would throw some cherry boards in the back of the truck and strap them in. By the time I got home and pulled those boards out, there was a strap line <laughs> on there. So if it is a bright, sunny area, um, you're not really going to have any problem getting a color shift in a fairly short period of time. It's a question of how much, uh, how long you want it to endure that. So what do you guys think? Finish or no finish for, for when you put this thing outside? Does it matter if it doesn't have a UV inhibitor? Yeah, I've done both because there's some people that would say if you wipe on like a boiled linseed oil, it will kind of like speed it up, right? It's kind of like, you know, wiping yourself down with mineral oil and go out and get a tan type oh, deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's what I like good to way do. You get a burn, I think. But you know about that. A little bit of tanning oil, a <laughs> little bit of a rub down. Yeah. I think it's the same, it's the same principle. But honestly, I didn't notice any difference from like naked wood or oiled up wood. Um, it was, uh, it was about the same um, in my area. Um, direct sunlight. Sorry. Yeah. Just wait for somebody to jump on that one. I'm actually like hesitant to move on. Just I, waiting. I tried to hold it in. I couldn't. Sorry. Okay. Go ahead. That's probably a show title there. Naked versus oiled up wood. Yeah. Um, yeah. Tried to hold it in. That's a show title. <laughs> okay. Anyway, I put it out like um, I actually took a table with me to work one day and set it out in the sun. And um, I think by lunchtime, I was like, yeah, it's done. Mm -hmm. uh, so four hours at most, it really doesn't take very long. Um, I think my, my bigger concern with the, the finishing issue is not so much whether it's going to speed it up at all. But when you put a project outside, the conditions outside, there's a lot of air movement um, and it can actually dry out the wood. So you could have an issue of stability. So I, I do like to have at least some finish on there because if there is any sort of a humidity difference or if all that air movement is causing it to dry, you're not going to get the sudden, like if it's a table, for instance, you've got a big tabletop, uh, you know, the direct sun, heat and all that stuff could very well cause that top to behave or misbehave, I should say. Um, so I would like to see some finish on there first to help slow down any of that uh, sort of environmental condition change that could occur there. Keep it protected. I mean, it's outside. There's going to probably be dust on it when you're done. Uh, you don't want to do something to it that's going to require you to want to sand it again once you bring it back in because then you just kind of defeated the whole purpose. In other words, make sure the finish is dry. Yes. Make sure <laughs> I would make sure it's got at least a little bit of finish on that and make sure it's dry. Yeah. How about like a treatment? Um, you guys ever do uh, like the what, baking like soda a, and potassium uh, dichromate or something? Well, that, yeah, that's a little aggressive. <laughs> yeah, it's the nuclear <laughs> option. <laughs> what kind of what kind, have you ever done this, Matt, with cherry? No, I just let it do its own thing inside the house. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, like the bigger projects, like the secretary, I, I did it over a long enough period of time that it was already aged when I got done to the finishing step. So it didn't really matter. But I don't know. I don't care enough. I'm like, oh, it's going to look different in a year anyway. It's going to get where it's going <laughs> to yeah. get. Yeah. Good I to know. know. That's just me. Okay. Yeah. Usually <laughs> I'm so slow that the color change is already done by the time I'm finished. Yeah. Projects. <laughs> right. You're building your projects too quickly. There's yeah. your answer. It's a year <laughs> later. Longer. Totally. Uh, okay. So we've got another question. This one's a little bit more of a th thought invoking sort of question about uh, building for your tools. Hey guys, uh, this is Kevin calling in from Boston here. Um, 
I guess this question would be titled Building for Tools versus Building for Yourself. Now, I am currently a medical student, and because of that, I have very little money, and what I do have probably should be going to things like food and all that good stuff rather than supporting my woodworking addiction. However, I've found that um, there's a piece of art that I make and I sell it on Facebook uh, that that brings me a decent amount of profit in and it, it lets me buy tools and wood. Uh, but I really don't like it. It's kind of a pain in the butt to do, but uh, it's the kind of thing that I feel like I have to do if I want to keep doing this. Um, I guess my question is, when you started out, how much time and effort did you dedicate to building things solely just to support the hobby? When did you transition into building a lot more things just for you? Um, and can you talk a little bit about that transition of accumulating tools, building just for money versus having the experience of just building for fun? Um, would really be happy to hear your opinion on it um keep up the hard work love everything you guys do you're hilarious you're amazing woodworkers and keep it up gee thanks kevin oh, well, he wanted to really right. make sure play, we played this play that again <laughs> let me get that last part again <laughs> hey yo um uh, you know, for me, my journey, I don't know if this is typical, but I had a decent job. You know, we, we didn't have children, Nicole and I at the time. So I was able to kind of, once I got into the hobby and was building things for myself, I could kind of just, not that I could buy what I want, but when I needed a table saw, I looked and found something used and got my table saw. And then I found that I wanted to joint and plane things. So I found some used tools and bought those. So I wasn't, uh, you know, a starving student at that time. I actually had a job. So I was able to to kind of gear up. Get off your lazy ass. Yeah, get off your job. Just stop being so lazy. Learn being a doctor and learning and learning stuff. how to cure people. <laughs> Who needs that? Lazy. Uh, but yeah, so I, I was able to kind of go from you know just totally as a hobbyist building what I wanted, and then at that point started to build stuff for other people, which then funded and justified spending even more money because I was making some money, um, being able to buy better tools and things like that to kind of fund shop purchases. Uh, and then of course, eventually I said, Hey, this is a great idea. Maybe I should stop making money and become a woodworker. And, uh, and I did that for a while. <laughs> uh, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and then of course, at that point, you're only building for clients and whatever they say goes. And then, uh, you know, I went full circle and started building for myself again, once I started to make content. So it was my journey. Either of you guys ever have a phase where you were building stuff, selling it right away, and using that to fund buying more tools? No. Usually in that beginning phase, you're not in a position to sell anything because you're probably not making anything worth selling. That's what I would think. Right? That's the kind of I think. For me me personally, the stuff I was making back then, I I probably wouldn't want to sell it because it probably wouldn't. It wasn't quite to the standards that I would like to have for something that I would sell. I bet your mom would have bought it. She, she just takes them free. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a little bit of his circumstance actually sounds atypical. It doesn't sound like most people are not going to be building things, selling them and using that to fund acquiring tools so they could learn woodworking. I, mean, I was in a similar position when I started, I was in college just working a, a minimum wage, low hour weekly job. So I didn't have a lot of money to do with anything with, but I didn't start building stuff to sell either. I just kind of invested the money I had 
that I could spare into the into the shop and getting things that way. And that whole idea of not having a whole lot of money is what led me down to having wood all over the place now because mm-hmm. I saw the material cost and I was like, this is insane. If I'm going to build a coffee table and spend $200 on materials, that's a router. I could go buy a router for that, but I'm spending that money on materials. So either you can like build something or you can have tools to build it. Right. So I went down the road of, oh, I bought that, uh, that, uh, that jointer planer you hate. So I bought that so I could actually use rough saw material uh, and not have nearly material costs. So the material costs went from like $200 to build a coffee table to like less than 50 to build the same coffee table like overnight. Mm-hmm. And that's how I was able to kind of fund things. I always had the same amount of like excess money, excess money <laughs> that I could put into the hobby. But because I wasn't putting that towards material costs, I could dump that money directly into tools. So that's how I went about acquiring just about everything in my shop right now is still from that period of my life where I was just kind of building up the shop and not paying money for materials. Mm-hmm. Nice. Good to know. Millie just That's came over path. here and farted next to me. Nice job. I wonder what's going on over there. So I, I, yeah, I, funny face is did? going. My dog. Nicole just did? No, no. Now I'll tell you what Nicole <laughs> did, right? Here's my, here's my scenario. Garage door is open because I got a nice breeze. It's a beautiful day here. And she's got to go pick up the kids. So she comes out, leaves the house door open so the dog can come in, but then closes the garage door so that the dog doesn't get out. <laughs> When the goal is to keep the dog in the house and let me have some fresh air and to add insult to injury, the dog sits next to me and farts. Nice. No respect around here, you guys. Okay. It hoards a vacuum of smell. Yes. Uh, Anything to add to this, uh, Shannon, before we hit our emails? No, other than any money I made just kind of magically disappeared. My my wife takes care of all the finances. Heather, (laughs) Heather, give him some money. The guy needs to play. Come on. It just it just kind of, I don't know where it went. You think it yoga pays for itself? Jeez. And, you know, it just kind of, we needed it. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it just gets absorbed. Pretty much. Makes sense. Okay. Uh, into our emails. We've got one here from, I didn't get the guy's name. This actually was an interesting topic that came in through Facebook. So I'm kind of going to relay a conversation I had because it's very curious to hear from you two, uh, what you think about this. So this person uh, on, on Facebook says you're a power tool user who uses a classic woodworkers bench. I'm a power tool user looking forward to building my first bench. Having done quite a bit of research and learning about workbenches, I find a real lack of examples of what I'll call power tool or hybrid woodworker benches. Let's well, this is where it gets a little weird, but, uh, let's design one together and show the world. Well, at least very, uh, at the very least you design one and share it with the wood whisperer crowd. (laughs) Can't think of any other builder content provider. I'd be more interested in in hearing from this, maybe Deresta, but come on, that guy's a freak. I'm not even even sure what that means. (laughs) Okay. But, um, so I wrote him back and I said, here's the thing. I am a self-professed hybrid woodworker. And I find that a well-designed classic workbench suits all of my needs, even if it's power tools. Because really when it comes to the workbench, you're talking about the work-holding ability. It's not necessarily, I mean, yes, the tool has to interact with the work, but I look at my workbench to hold material. And whether I'm using power tools or hand tools, I still need to hold my material in the same types of material in the same basic ways. So I said, what, well, what's missing from a classic workbench that you feel you need something. And, and in my head, I was, I said to Nicole, I'm like, yeah, actually the only thing I could think that would make my bench a hybrid bench. And I may do like an update video, maybe even charge money for this is me installing an outlet on it. 
going to say power strip. <laughs> you know, putting a power strip on it is like the only thing that I could say, okay, well, now it's a hybrid bench. All right, so I did ask him that question. He says, well, here are some of the items that give me rise to my query. Uh, in a classic bench, the outside of the legs are typically flush with the tabletop edge. So uh, let's see. So there's one plane to hold doors, for example, for hand planing. Uh, since there's no hand planing here, uh, while I like the look of the flush legs, the tabletop with an overhang provides more clamping options, I think. Classic workbenches are narrow. I think my ideal bench has a bit more depth for a, uh, for a lot of reasons. My ideal bench has built-in outlets, which was funny because that's the joke I made a few seconds ago, uh, for power tools. <clears throat> Some built-in storage, which is not typically found on classic workbenches, for a few of my power tools and accessories. One versatile vice rather than a leg vice and a side vice and a front vice. In my mind, I try to visualize how to incorporate the modern items I mentioned with classic workbench joinery. Uh, thick top, three inches minimum, hefty legs joined to the top with through mortise and tendons. Add a hardwood contrast and colored edge band around the top to set it off. Almost forgot, I like the idea of having clamping options at the center of the table like the split top Rubo, uh, but I'll take so it'll take some engineering to work with the cabinets below that I also want. Uh, this would be a great project. If you Google modern woodworkers bench and hunt around, you'll find a couple of examples, but they're not what I'm looking for. So I thought about this. And the particular bench that I have has tons of overhang. And the only place that it's flush with the legs is where it meets a leg. So if you look at the total surface of the bench, there's only four spots that I can't put a clamp on. And that's where my four legs are. So I don't actually see that as a a hindrance. Um, Of course, adding a power outlet, I I actually think that would be a cool idea. Um, Matt and I discussed recently about doing a collaborative effort where we both build storage for the underside space of the bench. I don't think you could say that classic workbenches don't have storage. Actually, most of them or a lot of them do. It's a matter of right. whether the person wants it or not. Uh, so yeah, for the split top, you need to let let there be clearance for clamps and things like that, but that's not hard to do. It just doesn't have to be as tall. So you can still get storage under there. I mean, the uh, and I'm just, um, I'm not trying to shoot this guy's idea down. I'm just trying to figure out if I'm missing something with this classic workbench, workbench and a, you know, power tool, semi power tool focused, um, you know, way of doing things. Is there something wrong with this style that you would need to necessitate going to a hybrid woodworkers bench? Cause this, this does everything I needed to do. I just, we talked about this, what, a couple of weeks ago where I said specifically, I cannot see myself in any time in the near future, even thinking the thought of getting a different bench. Hmm. So, I mean, yeah. you know, Matt, you've mentioned in the past wanting a bigger work surface. Yeah. Now, is that if a, you have pa- a space? If I had the space to put it in. Sure. Right. So is that a, yeah. is that a tool motivated decision or simply like the scale of the work that you do? I like the scale of the work of just having more room to put crap. So I have to clear off as much space to uh, use the spot of the bench, sure. you know? Okay. That's really it. And the fact that it, it's just, if you had the space, it the extra width is kind of handy to have because I don't really need it to be as skinny as it is or as narrow as it is. It could be wider if I had the mm-hmm. space. There's still plenty of room for me to like reach into the middle of the, of the workspace from either side. I can go maybe even three feet wide. I don't know if I want to go that wide, but I could still reach into the middle very easily. You start going like four feet, five feet wide, that's really wide, and getting mm-hmm. into the middle of the work area it becomes a little more difficult. But I think everything that you described from that list is like a slight modification on the way you would build a Rubo. Mm-hmm. It's like you want it wider. Okay, just make it wider. Right. And it, I, well, it's like I said a couple of weeks ago, the Rubo or the Nicholson, I suppose, they're kind of blank 
slate. Like mm-hmm. it's a blank chassis that you can bolt on, add on whatever you need from there. Yeah. So. And I mean, when you're talking about vices too, there's no reason you couldn't add some kind of a versatile quick release vice to Arubo. You don't need to have a tail vice installed. You don't need a leg vice. You can install whatever vice you want. Um, so I don't know. This this is one of those things where I I would love more than anything to be able to say that there's justification for a hybrid wood, woodworking bench because if I made it, it honestly could probably make me a decent amount of money <laughs> to, to give people plans as like a follow-up to the, the guy who wrote a book called Hybrid Woodworking. It would totally make sense. But no matter what I do, I keep coming back to the fact that a classic workbench design also works great for power tool users. Like what am I, I'm not going to fix something that isn't broken. You know what I mean? Yeah, enough so, things that are broken. I think yeah, exactly. if you were to go like go back into the archives of like fine woodworking magazine, like go back to the 80s, you're going to find workbenches in there that are power tool focused mm-hmm. because like in the eighties and even the early nineties, like hand tools, what the heck are those? Like nobody in the magazines was talking about them. Um, you, and so all of the workbenches were wider. All of them had like built in power strips yeah. and lots of places <laughs> right. for clamping. And I'm just thinking of like, even the, what's the, the Scandinavian company, Schoberg, Jorberg, sure, that one. Jürgenberg. Jürgenberg. Um, you know, that that uh, traditional German workbench, like the bench you used to have, Mark, um, yeah. with the purple heart on it, yep, the yep. David Marks with thing. With the big apron. Um, you know, they, they overhung specifically because you wanted to have clamping. Um, and you had a big face vise on the front that you could hold stuff for routing or whatever. And inevitably, there was like a six-foot-long power strip stuck to the bottom of it, you know? <laughs> it's just, to me, you say power to a workbench, and I'm having like 80s flashbacks, like going back into Fine Woodworking yeah. Archive or Wood Magazine. I don't remember when mm-hmm. Wood Magazine started, but Fine Woodworking's been around as long as I have. So it's always been there, and, you know, those were the workbenches you saw. So just just tell him to dig deeper into the archives. <laughs> well, but the so, thing, the focus is he is talking about a hybrid bench. As soon as you start wielding hand tools, you know, because yes. you, you could say if you're just doing power tools, even an MFT could be a good solution, right? You've got all those dog holes on the top. You could do all kinds of just a big work surface. But as soon as you start needing to use hand tools, you need that classic, well, you don't need it, but it's really helpful to have that classic workbench design. And everything else just goes along for the ride. So anyway, yeah. I'd be curious to hear from folks who are listening. If you have uh, ideas where this would make a lot of sense to deliberately go out of your way to make a hybrid style bench, um, I would love to hear about it. It's an interesting uh, thing to ponder. Okay. Next, I'll uh, take this one. Mark, yeah, go you've been talking too much. Good, thank you. Rest, you. Your, rest, rest your, your, your pretty voice. I need that, you know. man. Yeah. Uh, this one's from Corey. He says, uh, thanks for a great podcast. You guys, uh, my question deals with inspired slash derivative work. There's a saying that nothing is original any longer, that everything is spawned off of another idea somewhere in the past with so much inspired derivative work being done in woodworking. When is it appropriate to give credit to or compensate another woodworker when adapting a design you see online for your own end product? Bum, bum, bum. Dun, dun, dun. Now, let, let me just say, I put this in here wanting to make sure we do not veer off into questions of legalities. Let's say there are no legal issues. This becomes a moral and ethical dilemma of how, how much of someone else's work has to be in your work for you to either give credit or there's so much you feel inclined to give that person uh, like a licensing fee. Wow. Hmm. 
Sweet. a lot. So the, the, there's say, no legal reason to do so, but it's an ethical moral question. Yeah, which I would hope would be the overriding thing, um, first and foremost. But who am I to say that? Um, I, I mean, so much of this comes down to what you're going to make. Um, I think there would have to be an awful lot of of uniqueness in that design for me to want to say that. Um, and a good example of that is like our uniqueness, iconic might be a better word. Mm-hmm. Um, and Mark, I know you went through this with oh, yeah. the Maloof rocker. I got a story. There's an yep. example. Um, if that company is still in business, like Maloof is still making stuff. Um, Nakashima is another one. I love George Nakashima's work. Mira Nakashima is still building it. Um, I'm selling her lumber actually. And those designs are iconic, but you know, the high boy that Matt's building, I personally love Goddard's design of it. I love his details of it, but there's nothing that form is not original. So what, what Corey's saying is everything is derivative of that initial form and you can't, I don't know. So much of the work is that way. And it's rarely difficult to point a finger at one person and say, they're the one that came up with this idea. Um, so I, I don't know. I think it almost has to be, actually, that's a good word for it. It almost has to be an iconic piece, like a Krenoff stand. Um, and if you think about it, they're all like studio woodworking movement mm-hmm. because everything before that was really just, you know, rehashing the same designs from the 18th century, really. Right. So, Yeah. And they got to still be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that that can help. Well, see, that's well, where it gets, Okay, here's another example. Money. Sorry. Um, Daryl Peart mm-hmm. has some cool stuff that you look at it and go, that's a Daryl Peart. Um, but it's green and green. Like, you can look at it. If you're not familiar with his work, you might not see it. You know, there's some subtle curves that Daryl likes to, to evoke in some of his pieces. But... I, I wouldn't be asking for a license to build a green and green piece. You know, um, what is his table? The Aurora, I think he calls it the that, nightstand. That's one of them. The yeah. He's got an Aurora um, line. And that's, I think a gamble house inspiration, whatever. I mean, it's got all the green and green aspects to it, but there's just some subtle little things. Mm-hmm. Garrett hack is another example. Garrett builds a lot of 18th century or shaker furniture with his own little, mm-hmm twist he puts stringing inlay and stuff like that and uses a lot of checkerboard type inlay but i i don't know that i feel like i would need to as a content creator and a kind of a somewhat public persona i feel like i would need to tap like nod the head but pay licensing or seek permission probably not it's tough because the thing is you you most times you don't have to so it's there's nothing stopping someone from taking, you know, 99% of their projects influence from someone else and just like, it would just kind of uh, fly under the radar and no one would know and it would be fine. You know, but do you, do you even, do you feel guilty when you do something like that? Not to say that you have, but would you feel guilty? No, not at all. I mean, and, and again, like I said, I would, if I drew a particular inspiration, Garrett's a good example. Garrett hack has just beautiful stuff. Um, I haven't, built any of his stuff, but I've got several drawings and things in my head that I'd like to build. I would most definitely say I'm drawing on Garrett hack for inspiration here, mm-hmm. but I don't think I would go any further than that. It takes very little, like very little effort to call it out. 
you know, I, I, on my uh, recent dining room chairs, there's a little detail. I didn't want to go green and green, but I needed some kind of detail. And it did wind up invoking a little bit of green and green influence, but it wasn't green and green so much as Daryl Peart. It was one of his uh, arched cloud lifts, which is actually not, if, if I recall correctly, that specific detail is a modification of a green and green detail uh, that Daryl Peart kind of like popularized in his furniture line. So as I was building it, I made sure I called it out specifically as where I got that influence from. I don't, I don't really care about this stuff. Like I'm not one of those people who needs to um, be known and have a legacy of my amazing furniture style. I, I kind of, I kind of don't care. Uh, I would rather just build cool stuff and, and credit where I can. I, I, I'm just not talented enough. So uh, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about it. Uh, but yeah, I have no problem saying, Oh, by the way, this, this idea, I'm just totally ripping this off from, from Daryl's work. Go check out his stuff. Cause it's amazing. But it was one, one tiny little detail. You know, and I just felt obligated to call that out. So I do that all the time. If I'm influenced by a very specific detail, a specific design, I absolutely try to to sort of call that out. And and part of it is part of it is just my natural desire to like do the right thing. But also we work and live on the internet. So if you mm-hmm. even if you cross that line, even when you don't cross that line, you may have people telling you you just copied someone else. And then now you mm. find yourself defending yourself on the internet, which sucks. So it, it it's better it's better to proactively Never do it. Yeah, don't bother. You always lose. Um, it's I think it's better to proactively give credit on these things. And if it's if it's an influence, you're just it's in the sort of in the vein of educating people anyway. So why wouldn't you want to let them know where you got that influence? Yeah, Matt, what do you have to yeah. say? Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of like like you, I guess, Mark, because. Sharing the design inspiration is part of like the whole like thing that we do. Mm-hmm. Like the the best example of this was uh, Jared's bed. I did a whole video on like the design and inspiration of that, and I specifically put in the video this piece of furniture, the the bed that inspired the design. I gave credit to the guy. I, here's a picture of it from the show that I saw it at, and here's what I'm going to change on the bed to make it my own, mm-hmm. and it kind of evolved from there. So just because naturally that's the environment that I'm in where I'm just kind of sharing the whole process. The design inspiration process is a very fundamental part of the whole furniture design and building process that you're going to do yourself. And even with the high boy, I mean, that's, I'm, I'll, I'll go as far as say that I'm building my own version of one in the sense that it's not a straight reproduction. And if someone is really into high boys in that period, they'd probably laugh at me because there's so many like mismatched things on there that just don't like historically go together. And the styling is a little off and kind of mm-hmm. weird, but it's my piece of furniture. And I saw all these little details in different places that I liked that I thought would kind of amalgamate right. to something that is, you know, a new thing that is mine, mm-hmm. I guess. Sure. Yeah. Well, and I think that's at the heart of it. Like all three of us, when we build the piece, we start with a blank piece of paper and we, come up with the dimensions. We figure out how we're going to join things together. And yeah, it, you know, we're drawing, everybody's drawing inspiration from like constantly everywhere you go, you're Mm -hmm. drawing inspiration. Could be bad inspiration. (laughs) Listening to this show is a bad influence. We'll send you down the wrong path. Example. Yeah. But you know, I, I don't, I'm not a person who buys woodworking plans to go from there. I usually take a photograph and, you know, if I really, really like that piece and I want to reproduce it, I'm still not reproducing it 100 percent, but I'm doing all the work to, to figure out those dimensions and figure out I want to work that. I'll play with SketchUp and do different proportions and things like that. 
And there may be design elements or little details and things that I'm pulling from different sources. But like Mark said, it's usually, hey, I I got this idea from so-and-so more out of a, you really should check this person out. Mm -hmm. Like we're all in this together. So here's where I drew my inspiration. You should go look at this guy too, or girl too. Um, You know, the other thing about that too, is that it might not be their original design either. Probably isn't. They probably got from someone else as well. So it's just the continuous (laughs) chain. I mean, a real messy version of this for me, and I do hesitate to talk about it a little bit because it is related to like my business dealings, but I think it's, it's important. So when I built the sculpted rocker, you know, you brought this up before Shannon, I had to figure out how I was going to do this. It was a huge requested project. Lots of people wanted it. So I had options. Option one was to buy a set of plans. There are multiple people out there who have plans that you can get the templates I knew I could build it. I knew I had the skills to make it happen, but I needed a little bit of guidance to get there. And what I could have done, and it would have been perfectly legal to do this, is to buy somebody's plans, spend a month making the chair, and then take the templates, make my own versions of the templates with slight changes, whatever I think looks good, and then sell that free and clear on my own, and it would be my set of plans now. Problem was, I didn't have enough time to do that. That kind of felt ethically a little bit off to, to do something like that. But in reality, all of these people who are doing these sculpted rockers are really doing a Maloof rocker, or at least their version of a Maloof rocker. So you have people who are like, well, they don't have any right to that design. So you could take whatever you want from them. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's definitely gets messy. So what I wound up doing was working with someone who I had met before and had a, a rapport established with. So I talked to Charles Brock and what I wanted to do was license his plans So we actually do pay to license plans from Charles Brock and I taught people how to build it. So my videos are mine. You know, I made those, my teaching method, everything included in those videos is my creation, but we're using Brock's templates. So there's a small licensing fee per sale because of those templates. But the thing is, that's not even granted. He has gone off like, you know, like Daryl did with green and green. He went off in his own direction. That's what, uh, you know, that's what Chuck's done. But ultimately it's still coming from Maloof's original design, you know? So, so am I wrong to give Brock this money? Should I be giving it? And by the way, I did donate to the Maloof foundation to help (laughs) sort of satisfy some of my guilt (laughs) over the whole situation (laughs) as I did actually donate to them. Um, but still, you know, should I have been given that money consistently to the Maloof foundation as opposed to Charles Brock? You know what I mean? It's, it just gets really, really messy, especially when you want to reproduce plans and then profit from those plans. So you're looking at this another way. What if if Charles Brock was never even in the in the equation? Mm-hmm. Um, because he was really well. There was the guy down in Texas. I'm forgetting his name now. Who was doing a sculpted rocker for a while, and he had some plans available on the internet. But Charles Brock was really the one who first got noticed. He went mainstream with making a DVD. He had templates that you could, you know, There's you could a, buy Scott Morrison too, I believe Scott Morrison. That's who I was looking yeah. at. He's in Texas, isn't he? And Hal Taylor. Uh, those are like the Hal big Taylor. Three. That's who I'm uh, Those are the big, Never yeah. mind. <laughs> those are the big three that come to mind. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, if, if there wasn't anybody with plans out there, um, would you have taken the step to reach out to the Maloof foundation at that point? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of the problem because I want to, knock them upside the head and say, you guys are missing a, I understand you make these things, but do you realize how much money you're leaving on the table by not providing woodworkers with a kit? 
Because I have done that, and I'm going to leave the names out to protect the innocent. In trying to do the right thing, you know, there is a certain uh, piece of furniture, and it's nothing, you know, I wouldn't call it iconic, but I specifically know who made it. I know where I saw it. I have photographs of it. I've had people say, I want you to build that. Can you show us how to build that? So I thought, you know what? I should do the right thing here. And I reached out to that woodworker, and I was shut down. Yeah. And I said, oh, are you like, are you teaching class on this? No. Do you have some plans on it? No. Like that no, no designs whatsoever of doing a how-to or showing other woodworkers how to build it. It's just, this is my design. Mm -hmm. Well, the fact of the matter is I have multiple photographs of this piece of furniture taken from multiple angles because that's what I do. And I could easily reproduce this. And but to me, because I've specifically reached out, and this is where you get into that fun thing, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> I never asked, so I can't get in trouble, right? Well, I specifically <laughs> asked, and I was specifically told no. Now, can this person specifically claim exclusive right? Do they have some sort of license or patent on this piece of furniture? No. Um, but I'm not going to do it because it feels wrong at feels this like point. It. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, I suppose I could alter it a fair amount. Um, and still draw inspiration from, and I think I could probably get away from that. But the fact of the matter is I've had, I don't know if I could say hundreds, but pretty close to hundreds of emails saying, Ooh, you have a post on your blog and there's this piece pictured in it. When did you build that? Or when are you going to build that? And I could totally build this. And if I wanted to monetize it, you know, I, as, as Mark said, I could make a lot of money off a of hybrid workbench. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you right. know, I know that there are customers ready to buy this. Yeah. Um, but the person that I originally saw this from who did actually build it and nope, nope, you can't do it. Not interested. So I was like, okay, well, crap. Now you you're know? stuck. You either do something, you know, that goes against your morals or, you know, just give up on it. Yeah. I mean, I suppose the solution is to just redesign it. Um, and I'll know. Air quotes, and redesign, redesign it. Air quotes. <laughs> put this well, over put there, start, put that over know. there, and done. <laughs> there oh, are some things that you look at. Mine's in oh. cherry, and yours is in walnut. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Obviously, it's different. I like it. I like it. <laughs> I 3D printed mine. But, you know, there are, there are pieces you look at, and you go, I wouldn't alter a thing. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I want to build that right there. And, you know, that's what you do. So... There's never going to be a good answer, a satisfactory answer to this one. No, it's a very personal thing, honestly. That's why I wanted to keep the legalities out of it because th- let's say this is all within the realm of perfectly legal things to do, but a lot of times we have to draw the line before legal restrictions if we want to keep our friends. It's not about what you have to do. It's what you should do. Yeah, exactly. All right, interesting topic. Um, we went a little bit long on that, so I did have one more question, but we will save that for next time, and I think we could probably close it off right here. Uh, Shannon, why don't you give them some contact info and we'll get out of here. Okay. There are lots of ways that you can talk to us. Um, We prefer when you send in voicemails. So use your voice memo app and send that to Woodtalk Online. Well, record it in the voice memo app. Then use your email app to send it to woodtalkonline at gmail.com. Or if you want to ask us a question in the old typey typey way, go to woodtalkonline slash woodtalkonline.com slash contact. And there's a form there and you fill it out. Um, if you have specific things about this episode, go to our website, look up this episode, scroll to the bottom, leave a comment, and be nice. Yeah, please. Be nice. We like be that. Nice. Don't be mean to us. Yeah. <laughs> our skin is always so thick. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everybody, and we will catch you next time. See you. Bye.
Goodbye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.